Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 308 and my conversation with longtime University of South Carolina percussion professor and member of the Simpatico Percussion Group, Scott Herrick. We'll get back to him shortly. But first up, Marching Mizzou. The day that this episode is going up, Mizzou will be playing in their home opener for football against Louisiana Tech on a Thursday night. It's the first Thursday night regular season game for Mizzou since 2015, and the first since I've been assistant director of athletic bands at the school. It's very exciting, but it's also a bit weird to have to deal with a game during an academic workday. But that also means we won't have a game during the Labor Day weekend. So that's pretty cool. Otherwise, classes and everything else seem to be going pretty well. And with that, let's get to our chat with Scott Herring. Prior to starting the interview, Scott and I were trying to gather if we'd actually met. And I think we came up with, yeah, sure. It was most likely one of those classic, basic, quick handshake meetings you do. Or really, the same kind of ones you would do at any conference. In any case, it was a lot of fun to get a chance to talk with Scott and hear more about his career and journey at length. Scott's been at the helm at the University of South Carolina for just over 20 years and has built quite a program there in his time, including multiple percussion ensemble basic performance wins. He's also taught at Emporia State in Kansas and has been heavily involved in solo and chamber playing throughout, particularly as it involves the Simpatico Percussion Group, along with his work on the Rosewind Chamber Duo. We get to quite a lot in this discussion, including winning and maintaining a job at a Research One institution, his time growing up in North Carolina and his sports background, and the unusual way he finished his time in his doctorate and the challenges of his first job. We get to all of that, including discussions of Star Wars and Malcolm Gladwell in our closing segment. So let's get to it. We recorded this interview over Zoom on August 5th, 2022, and it begins right now. So, Scott, give me a summation of your percussion responsibilities and activities as they are at this point. Well, I'm so the coordinator of percussion at the University of South Carolina and oversee all the percussive aspects, um, the classical program with um, students from all the way from undergraduate, you know, Bachelor of Arts majors up to doctoral level students and um, responsible for some advising with the graduate students. We have a very healthy graduate program as well. Um, do all the applied teaching there, run our studio class each week and um, oversee the steel band, which is run by one of my TAs. Um, yeah, that's basically my job in a nutshell. Gotcha. And what about uh, performing wise? There's quite a bit of that and diversity as well in the performings. Um, play some with the South Carolina Philharmonic, which is housed right, right at uh, the university, basically. Um, and then have my uh, saxophone marimba duo that I do a lot of performing with, Rosewind. And then also perform as a member of the Simpatico Percussion Group. 
And a lot of chamber performing, actually, with my colleagues um, at the School of Music. We have a pretty healthy faculty chamber series um, where we get to perform with each other each year on selected Sundays throughout the, the calendar year. So it's a really, really cool opportunity to play with those folks. Take this kind of one at a time. So when you said coordinators, that mean that there are other adjunct or full-time people that are also working with you at South Carolina? Yeah. So um, one of my former students and now colleague, Bailey Seabury, teaches the Carolina band, um, the the marching percussion section. And um, there's a TA that is technically through the band area, but it's a percussion doctoral student that also assists him. And then we have, and Bailey, as well as doing the Carolina Band Drumline, teaches some applied percussion. He also helps out with percussion ensemble. Um, <clears throat> we've started using Bailey a lot more actually this year, especially, um, oh, sorry, with last year with the PASIC performance. He was really, really crucial in getting us ready for that, being able to re- rehearse two pieces at once and, you know, draw on his expertise as well. And then assigning, you know, lessons to, to Bailey as well as the graduate students as well. Tell me a little bit about getting the job, where you were before then, the status of the program when you entered it, et cetera. Sure. So I previously taught at a small school in Kansas, Emporia State. I was mm-hmm. there for three years, got that job like right out of school. Super, you know, super lucky to get that, make that happen. The job market those days was a lot different than what we see nowadays. Yeah. Um, and taught there for three years. It was like the best possible teaching environment that I could have had. Um, small school, no one really looking over my shoulder, telling me what to do. Um, had pretty much free reign to do what I wanted to percussion-wise. Um, <clears throat> level of students was maybe not quite the same, but um, we really got that program, you know, on the right kind of trajectory. Um, what, always, all that, so, I'm sorry, what, what sure. years were you there? 99 to 2002. Okay, got it. Fall right. of 99 to spring of 2002. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Um, and had like just left graduate school, you know, finished my coursework at Northwestern, jumped right into the gig. And then the job at South Carolina came open. Um, I'm from North Carolina originally, so knew I wanted to get back over this way. My wife and I were, you know, thinking about starting a family, wanted to be closer to our family. So uh, applied, thought it was a long shot um, and was just really, really fortunate to be hired here. And uh, I'll be starting year 21 this year. What would do you remember what the, you know, the, the job process was like to getting it in terms of the, your audition or, or the, how many days, that kind of thing, how you found yeah. out time of year, all that stuff. Yeah. Right. I think it was pretty early spring. Um, I want to say February or early, early March. Um, it wasn't the last minute things that we've seen happen in some of the places here recently and, um, got the call, you know, wanted to have me out for a day. Everything was encompassed in one single day, um, which was similar to the the interview I did uh, for Emporia as well. Um, you know, and it's a whirlwind day. It's, uh, it's grueling to, to meet with all the people, the committee, the Dean, um, go through human resources activities, play a recital, have lunch, have dinner with the committee. You know, it's a, it's a whirlwind day. What was the facility situation when you arrived? Pretty much the same as we have now. Um, The building was built maybe seven or eight years prior to my arrival. So now it's, you know, it's pushing 30 years now. Um, And it's, it's very good. There certainly are things that I wish we had, 
different than, you know, we all have our wish lists, right? Um, but it's very good. We're fortunate to have a suite of percussion rooms. So we have uh, five, five rooms for the percussion studio, one of them being a large rehearsal room that we do our steel band rehearsals in, percussion ensemble, teach the methods class in that room. And then outside of that suite, we have a couple of other rooms we've kind of commandeered over the years as well. Um, gear was the, was the big issue. Um, uh, my predecessor, you know, he'd been here for a while and there's some things were acquired prior to my arrival, obviously. And the, you know, there, there was an inventory of instruments, but they were aging for sure. Um, we had no five octave marimbas. Um, so there was a lot of things to, a lot of work to be done. And we are really blessed with the gear now. Very, very, very top in gear. We have a lot of it. It's actually hard to manage and find places to put a lot of it sometimes. Mm -hmm. Fair, yeah. Did you have a steel band when you got there or did that come later? No, we did. In fact, my predecessor, Jim Hall, he started the steel band. I think he bought the drums in the late 80s. I want to say 88. Oh, wow. Um, if he, he can like he can like correct me if he watches this <laughs> later on. Uh, but it was somewhere in, in that area, um, you know, still kind of early on in like the university steel band programs. Um, the drums were, they were okay. They were made by pain maker, uh, Kim Lloyd Wong and, um, the quality was just okay. And, um, we started having Emily Limmerman come in and tune mm -hmm. those drums for yeah. us. So she does great work, yeah. um, you know, and was able to, to do about as well as she can. Since then we've replaced the whole band. I had a couple of, um, very interested donors that were, you know, wanted to find a way to use some money for the steel band. So we were, we were really fortunate to replace the whole band. Since you've been there now uh, 20 plus years, in what ways has the job evolved? Has it not evolved a lot? What, what are the things that have changed uh, since you've gone from being the, the new guy to, I would assume. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. See, institutional memory. You're, you're one of the institutional memory people. Looking at the, the program as a whole, the whole school of music, um, I – I think we have definitely seen a somewhat of a shift from more music ed training to more of like a 50-50 split performance music ed. Um, many of my students, well, when I got here, I don't know if there were any performance majors, maybe one or two. Um, and now I find that these it, the split is much more even. Either they're performance majors or they're like the music ed wanting to do performer certificate as well. A lot of them wanting to go to grad school. I don't think that was quite as um, uh, as prevalent prior to my arrival, not just percussion wise, I think the entire school um, and the development of the graduate program has really, really taken off. Um, I didn't have any graduate students the first year or two and then one trickled in um, last year. We had six. So it's been a, a really big you know, growth in that side of the program. Now, in the music school, had there always been doctoral level programs? Um, yes, there have been all the time that I've been here. Yes. Um, lots of music ed PhD students for sure. Um, a lot of wind conducting DMA students. And I think it was, I don't know, maybe my second graduate student was my first DMA student. Um, and you know, we've had a, a number of those come through and have some successes out in higher ed. Yeah. Awesome. Actually one of them, uh, not in, not a percussion, but one of the, I think he's PhD teaches he's one of he works with me with the um athletic bands oh, uh, christian noon oh yeah right yes absolutely yeah yeah um yeah, yeah he did his doctorate or and i can't remember i think if think it's phd um 
I don't yeah. remember if he was a music ed student or if he was wind conducting. So yeah, but yeah. right. Yes. Tristan, his wife, uh, Janie, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. 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 Awesome. Yeah. I'll, yeah. Tell, I'll tell him we talked. Please do. Please do. <laughs> I will. Has your job kind of the way it's set up and the way that I'm assuming that you've um, kind of been promoted over the years, has it been something that has leaned very heavily on you being a performer? You know, I don't, I don't know. Okay. Um, I mean, certainly there are those expectations in the research area for, um, you know, for academic mm-hmm. teaching. So having that, that building a dossier that's, you know, healthy with performing is certainly something that we want to see. Um, I mean, so in that respect, yes, I, I would assume so. That has something to do with it. I think, um, I mean, I do plenty of performing. I, that's fine. I think more for me, what shows more has been the successes of the students um, and the health of the, you know, like the teaching of the program here. When you played at PASIC this past year, was that the first time that your ensemble played there? Um, that was the first time Simpatico had played. Yeah, oh, you some talk, you might be talking about my percussion, our university no. percussion ensemble. No, this was our second one. Um, yeah. And at the same time, Simpatico played. So I had both of those and one show, which I really hope not to have to do again. <laughs> yeah, it made for an interesting fall. Yeah, um, interesting. Yeah, yeah, the first time the, um, the USC group won the IPEC was in 2012, and we played in Austin that year. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a little bit easier being that it was in Indianapolis, not having to get to Austin. Um, we didn't actually perform on the way when we went to Austin. We paid a company to drive our, our all of our gear there help us unload it. And we flew all the students in 2012. This year, the group was able to drive. The only unfortunate part was I was not able to go with them because I was in Columbus rehearsing with Simpatico. So we played our percussion ensemble concert here. I took off two days later, went and rehearsed, you know, performed with Simpatico. And we met up in outside of Indy for their final performance at Center Grove. Tell me a little bit about the beginnings of Simpatico and kind of the, that group. Yeah. So I was um, a classmate, doctoral classmate with Susan Powell at Northwestern. Um, And uh, we obviously did a lot of playing together, chamber-wise and percussion ensemble. We did some duo work there. And previously, she had had a duo with with Joe Krieger, Mm -hmm. which was an outgrowth of their time at Eastman. I don't, and I'm not sure if you're aware of the group Rhythm Axis that um, they had at Eastman. It was a group of, it was a quintet there. Um, And they actually won the PAS competition, like early nineties okay. as this group with the Maxis. Um, so their, their love and passion for chamber music has, has always been there. And I grew to appreciate that more. Um, after playing a lot with Susan, she and I, uh, she and I and Joe talked and we said, okay, we'd like to do some trio work. So we started playing as a trio, the Shiraz trio for, I don't know, seven, eight, nine years, I guess. Again, just years. What years are we talking about with that? Um, I think the f- the first gigs we played would have been like my first year teaching in Kansas. So like in 99, right yeah. right there, like very, very late 90s, early 2000s. Um, we did some day of percussion kind of things um, here. We did one in Ohio, um, some performances at other schools. And um, there was a couple of things. First of all, we were finding the repertoire to be very limiting for mm-hmm. trios um, some good stuff, but, you know, there's just there's not a, a wealth of repertoire out there. We also, as we got older, <laughs> we 
realized that we didn't like moving all the gear ourselves. So like, Hey, let's think about, you know, adding some, some people to this group. Um, Chris Norton was the very first, like, yes, we want Chris Norton to play with our group. And um, we started out at the group started out with Chris Norton and Chris Keaton. And then when Keaton won his job with the, the DC job, um, he had to step away and we had some transition people and um, we finally have Johnny Mendoza and so thrilled to have him. He's such a great guy and incredible player. So, so how did you not um, lose your mind in last fall to put all that together? <laughs> um, you know, I don't know. <laughs> it's, I, I honestly, and I, I've given him this credit as many times as I possibly have had the opportunity, but Bailey, there's no way I could have done that without Bailey Seabury being here. Just helping run rehearsals, you know, walking away from this group six days before we were playing in Indianapolis was like the scariest thing I've ever done, you know, from truck loading, music, mallets, you know, hopefully someone doesn't get hurt on the way or injured or sick, somebody get COVID. I mean, that was another stress to worry about, you know, is one of these people in this bus or on these vans going to get COVID between now and the time they get, you know, show up in Indianapolis. Um, So that was, you know, a huge concern. We didn't know how that was going to factor in. Um, And I mean, to make it even a little worse, when we went in 2012, I did not take first year students that, that for that concert. Um, I didn't yet know they're playing. And it was just, I felt like it was too big a stage at that point to, to bring in the first years. This time I made a commitment that I wanted to take them all. And um, because the experience of playing on that stage in front of your peers, in front of the percussion community is something that, you know, they may never get to do again. And I wanted them all to have that experience. So I was really, really passionate about taking them all. Our director of bands was incredibly gracious. He actually let them all miss a concert in order to do this. Mm -hmm. Um, It was a Veterans Day concert. It was so, you know, the like percussion demands were not what they would normally be for a, you know, research one institution wind ensemble. So we had alumni and some of our faculty who are percussionists come in and play that concert so I could take them all. Um, and that was just that was like such a gift to be able to do that. Otherwise, I'd have been you know, figuring out how to weave around this concert that was on Thursday night. You know, I, I've talked to others who have who've, who've had the, you know, the opportunity to play for that concert. It's like I, I see the, 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 the first time when you're like, you know, about not bringing in the students I think what you did it occur to you when you're like, this may be their only shot to play at PASIC. Like I should give them, I should give everybody an opportunity. Was that part of your thinking this time? It absolutely was. And I mean, it's getting so much more difficult to win that competition now. You know, there was a time when it seemed to be the same seven or eight groups or nine groups were just like rotating. Um, Now we have, um, you know, smaller schools, winning this you know that's happening regularly and so just yes I was like we may never win again you know and honestly I mean I wasn't expecting to win this time I guess you're never expecting to win Um, I've certainly felt like we have submitted better recordings but you know you never know what the people listening to it are going to think so 
Wait, which of those do you do you find out you get Sympatico or the the university group? Which one came first? Do you remember? Sympatico came first, so we found that out like in you know April or something. And, huh. you know, they're super excited, and then June, here we get the call, and I'm like, uh oh. <laughs> well, and, and this happened to me in 2012. My duo Rosemond played as well, so it's like. Yeah, I can't just go do it one go and do one thing. It seems to have to come in pairs, and yeah. I don't wish that on anyone. <laughs> I mean, I I don't mean to sound ungrateful for the opportunity. no, no, of course not. But it's it's pretty stressful. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. Yes, I'm sure. The time that you've been there now, I understand the family aspect, but when you know when you progress in your career and you progress through a long, large amount of time at a school and you go up for promotion and that kind of thing. Those are often times when, when you're, I don't know if it was suggested or they go, you know, you should maybe apply some to some jobs and I'm not asking about which, but is, is that something that you came up and you thought I should just kind of see, I throw my hat in a few things. I, I've applied for multiple. I'm, 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 I've been talking to my students about it. I mean, I've applied yep. for multiple jobs, mm-hmm. um, been interviewed for a number of them, yep. um, haven't been offered any of them. So I never had that decision to make, um, you know, which I guess is good and bad. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them resulted in a, you know, um, really healthy retention package here and um, to help out the studio with the graduate assistant, um, gear, you know, financial support from the School of Music, uh, which has been incredibly helpful. Honestly, it makes it very difficult to even want to leave. Sure. Um, well, that's awesome. Yeah. That's what you want. You know, <laughs> that's what a retention, yeah. that's what a retention package is actually supposed to do. Right, exactly. And um we at that point in um with our administration, they were, they were very aggressive. They did not want folks to even go take interviews. So I yeah. honestly didn't even have to go interview for that job. Um, and that was, that was great. And, you know, I think when you are at a place like this, the number of in, like other schools that are really interesting to you become very, very short. That list is very, very short. Right. Well, and add in for you, the family dynamic obviously is going to, not just your family, but being close to family, like is going to hike that or, or short, small, make that list even smaller, I would assume. Right. I mean, my mother is 81. And so like, what yep. she lives three hours away, you know, what am I going to do? Like move halfway across the country. Same thing. My wife's parents are about four hours away. So yeah, I mean, we're, we're really close and convenient to be able to help the things when we need to. And yeah, I mean, I, that doesn't mean I wouldn't look at something for sure. sure, but it definitely like, you know, puts the, the, the pile down to be very, very small. Yeah. I, what, what's the, you mentioned the kind of, you talk about your students uh, about this kind of thing. What, what kinds of things are in that, are in that, I don't want to say presentation, but when you do talk about them, what, what are the things that you, stress about this job search job offering situation oh yeah i mean that's something we talk about a lot in our pedagogy class with the graduate students yeah um because most of them are like their their goal is college teaching or it may be one of their secondary goals um so i i run them through the process i show them my tenure files that so they they're able to see what they're you know 
they're expected to be doing while they're in a teaching position. We go through the interview process, how that works. I like very much the same conversation I had with you about how the interview worked here at USC. Um, all that process, some of the nightmare stories I've had on interviews, um, you know, and trying to make lemonade out of situations that are not super great. I think I'm going to stop there. Let's we're going to back up now. So where did you grow up? Um, small town in North Carolina, Goldsboro, North Carolina. Yeah. yeah big um, the town is sort of propped up by a large Air Force base there, Seymour Johnson Air Force Base. My first middle school band director was a first year teacher. Uh, she was an oboist. Her husband is a percussionist. You may know her husband, uh, Mark Shelton, if you've seen the Percussion Tip Tuesdays on Facebook and Instagram. Um, Name sounds familiar. I don't know if I, yeah. Currently lives in the, in the Dallas area. Um, so he came and worked some with us, um, you know, as I, she had her hands full as a first year teacher. And so it's like, yeah, I mean, I've got a percussionist, I'm going to use them. And so I got to see him work in a percussion environment as a first year band student. You know, I didn't know anything. Probably one of the most memorable things, my mother took me to see him play a recital at the public library. And I mean, I got to see him play solo marimba, solo timpani, snare drum. And I was like, whoa, this is pretty cool. I think I want to do this. Right. And so that was a, a really great, like early start the fire kind of thing. And then she left, I believe, after the first year and the second year, my middle school band director, he was a percussionist himself. So it was really you know, easy to kind of draw on his skills Um let me take a drum set home after the first summer he had been there. So like, I got really interested in that. I had a girlfriend that was a flute player and her family was incredibly supportive of her musically. And I sort of gravitated toward that. I was seeing the things that she was doing, the Allstate bands, going to like the National Flute Society conventions, you know, in California as a high school student. And so those kinds of things. My, my family was not really musically inclined or gifted, but me seeing that, it's like, okay, this is what musicians do, right? And, um, you know, probably going to my first, like, all-state band, I was like, okay, this is this is what I'm going to do. This is, you know, with people that all want to be here, this is awesome. Went to a summer music camp at East Carolina and worked with Mark Ford when he was there. I, I was hooked. I was sold. There's no going back after that. <laughs> Remind me again where where Goldsboro is in state. It is about 50 miles east of Raleigh. Oh, okay. Like on I-40 or or not that far? No, 40 actually. Yeah, it, it's it's north of I-40. It's on Highway 70. So like if you're going okay. from Raleigh to Moorhead City, mm-hmm. you go right through there. Okay. Yep. That's another thing that probably props the town up. Meets <laughs> <laughs> traffic. Yeah, yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. When you get the drum set what's what are you playing on it what music oh do you mean when in middle school yeah 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 what oh my god (laughs) so for me the greatest part of the month was when the new modern drummer came out Uh with the transcriptions of drum set parts yeah so (laughs) i mean i remember like Girls, 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 the Motley Crue song. That was big one. And and I could play every single note. There were some things by Rat. Um, (laughs) I mean, I was into like this, like, you know, 80s, late 80s rock. And that's what I was playing. Um, And I remember somehow 
somebody turning me on to Billy Cobham at that point. And so like, I'm, you know, listening to Motley Crue, Poison, or something like that. Rack, yeah. you know, and then <laughs> Billy Cobham and somewhere along the way, I f- was gifted or found this method book by Ralph Humphreys called even in the odds. Oh. I don't even, and I don't even have it anymore. I don't know what happened to it, but like the whole book was like odd meter groove. So like I'm a ninth or 10th grader and like learning to play in five, eight and seven, eight and like groove on the drum set, which, you know, I think it's probably pretty uncommon even nowadays. Right. I mean, you know, most uh, drum set players in high school aren't really, really doing that. So that kind of got me going on maybe a little bit higher art drum set playing. Now I can't do any of that like now. I mean, I, you know, I shouldn't say that I can I play drum set fine, but yeah, it's not right. my, my main gig. Right. Yeah. Um, you're not doing just, dream theater. Uh, you're not dream, doing dream theater transcriptions. I'm going to assume dream theater. Yes. Yes. All that stuff, man. It's great. You know, I was in the rush, um, yeah. you know, learning to play these charts and stuff. So it was, it was super fun. And that actually, before I even had a drum set, I was learning, you may not believe this, but I swear to you, this is true. I was sitting in like in my bedroom on the bed and like air drumming, learning to play like these coordination patterns without even having a kit. Mm. Yeah. And so I think it was my mother telling the drum set, I mean, my middle school band director about this, that ended up being the reason I got that drum set over the summer. Right, right, yeah. Yeah. And then he finds out you're playing girls, girls, girls. And <laughs> <laughs> Like, was this a good idea? I don't know. <laughs> I remember getting to play um, play some things with the band. Like one of my most memorable um, drum set experiences was not me playing. Um, when I played in the one of the regional bands in North Carolina. And I think I was still like in the second level and the, the upper level, high school level, the 11th, 12th grade group played um, a piece called the 60s. And it's a band and it's like all these like 60s pop tunes, like sort of, you know, melded together. Um, and Dave Albert, I don't know if you know Dave Albert. He was at uh, one of the high schools in North Carolina. Incredible drum set player. Mm-hmm. They had him come in and play the drum set part. So, I mean, what do I do? I go right back. As soon as we get the cassette tape, you know, that came from our all-state band or, or region band, headphones on. You know, I'm learning every note that Dave played on the drum set part. And it's funny because I got to bring my percussion ensemble to his school maybe about eight years ago. And I, I told like him and my students a story all at the same time. Um, it was very, very special to be able to visit him and, you know, let him know how, like what an impact he had on me as a you know percussionist. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. What, when you were in high school, what was the marching experience like? Um, it was good. We were, I was in a competitive high school program. Um, there were certainly, you know, bigger, flashier schools across the state that we competed with. Um, but I mean, we, we were solid, you know, it was still, um, I mean, we're talking about, you know, 88, 87, 88, Mm-hmm. Um, so we're still playing on Mylar heads and, you know, we didn't really delve into that until I was in college. Um, but yeah, I think it was, it was really outstanding, um, to be able to do that. We had some good instruction that, um, we had college students coming, helping out the drum line as well. So that, that played a big, you know, role in my music ed as well. What colleges are near there? 
Well, East Carolina is only 45 minutes from me. Okay. So that made sense. Um, and my high school band director was a graduate of uh, North Carolina A&T. Oh, and yeah. So, yep. But he, um, he, I wouldn't say he had like anything against the show style, but he was very committed to doing like core style marching. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was really fortunate to learn like some, you know, really solid rudimental skills. We had folks from A&T coming and helping. Um, awesome who were also very versed. They were, uh, some of them were graduates of the high school that I went to and then came back and helped out. So yeah, really, really, really good experience. Fantastic. When you were in high school uh, and growing up, was there, were you involved in anything else? Did you do any sports or student government or church things that were kind of filling out your time? I was really interested in, this seems odd, playing table tennis. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Did some like, local level competitive playing. And um, I don't know what got me interested in that. But after my junior year of high school, in the summer, I decided I wanted to learn to play tennis. Oh, like, yeah, actually, like, yeah, yeah. T- tennis. Yeah. tennis. Right. So um, I, I looked into one of the guys that coached the team at, a, at my high school and asked him about taking lessons. And so um, he traded me lessons on t- tennis for going and helping him do tennis clinics at places like close to Goldsboro and in and around Goldsboro. Hmm. So I would get free lessons, tennis lessons with him, and I would get to go and watch all of his clinics, help him out. So like, you know, really learning about this. Um, I, I made my tennis team in my senior year of high school. I don't know how on earth that happened. Um, the, 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 Boys team was not as strong as the girls team. The girls team won the state tennis championship three out of four years. I was there. The the guys team was not quite that strong, but yeah, I mean, I was like six seed player, mm-hmm. the worst one on there, but you know, yeah, it was super fun. So that was something that was super interesting to me. That's fascinating. But, yeah. Since then I've taken up, um, I play a lot of golf and uh, a lot of cycling now. It's something I've gotten into the last two years. I'm curious when, kind of where where you said you entered that uh, just going back to the tennis thing for one sec um was that like on a was that mean that you were playing doubles mostly or were you playing singles no i in fact i never played a doubles match that i can remember i only played singles okay. yeah yeah so i was like the sixth seed singles player and you know from week to week they they reseed the team so there'd be a week where i'd be seven i wouldn't get to play in the tournament you know the next week i would be six i never really made it above six because, I mean, most of these guys have been playing, you know, most of their life. You know, I've been playing for a year at that yeah. point. Yeah. That's awesome. What was your – did you have – A lot of the table tennis skills apply to that, you know, for sure. Yeah. yeah. What What did you get good at for that – in that year or so? Actually, the same thing I'm good at with table tennis is, like, ground strokes oh yeah being a good defensive player i'm not i'm not fast i was never super fast Mm -hmm. um and i wasn't like a really super fast serving with my serve um but i was very good defensive player you know and i can hit the ball deep like that's that's the key right and a lot lot of top spin so nice you're 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 a pre-jokovic it sounds like (laughs) (laughs) you know it's funny man because i Remember when I first got here to South Carolina, Djokovic and Nadal were like winning all the tournaments and they're still winning all the tournaments. It is crazy how they've lasted. It's amazing. Yeah. So where do you end up going to undergrad? 
ended up at East Carolina. Only place that I was interested in going, only place I auditioned. Um, had been taking some lessons with a graduate student over there, uh, one of Mark Ford's students. Um, and actually, the really funny part about this is when I played my audition, I did not play any keyboard percussion at all. I mm. like I did. I had none of those skills. Now, snare drum and Tiffany playing was, you know, pretty good for my age at that point. But I just didn't have the keyboard skills. And for some reason, Mark took a chance on me. Um, and then I got very passionate about playing the marimba mm-hmm. for whatever reason. Um, you know, and that's primarily what I do now from a, a soloistic standpoint. Did you have a piano background at all? None. Nope. None. Didn't have one in the house. Again, like I said, I didn't have um, my, my family is not musical. None of, no one in my family at all, like has any musical talent or, I, I mean, I don't, I wouldn't say talent, but just, it wasn't something that they, they did. Was Christine there yet? Not in any like official capacity, but we would have him in for various clinics. I, I knew him. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I knew him well from both there. And then later on my days, um, playing his music and communicating with him a lot. Uh, when I was in graduate school and then uh, some commissions like um, actually Shiraz. No, I guess it was Simpatico that commissioned a piece um, that he wrote for Susan. It was a kind of a xylophone solo that we played with her at PASIC. Um, I can't remember what year that was, 2011 or something. And um, yeah, we've played a lot of his music here. My students play a tremendous amount of his music. Um, you know, always been very passionate about his work. Yeah. Good friend. Very sad to see him gone. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Do you get in like really heavily into the percussion ensemble side of it when you get there? You know, I something I did. Okay, I think. Um, <laughs> I think. <laughs> I mean, I, I wouldn't say that I was like super driven by it at that point. Sure. Um, and I and I don't know why because Mark. Well, my first year at least was working with Harold Jones and his. Mm. The, the younger group. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, played in Mark's group and we played some great rep. We had guest artists. Um, I don't think it was until I got to Northwestern that I really sunk in and dug into to percussion ensemble rep. Interesting. Because mm-hmm. I, I, I wasn't aware when you get there that Harold Jones was still, I know like he built it and then right. Mark comes along and kind of moves it up to the next, right. know, next level. In fact, my fi- my last two years there, my junior and senior year, I actually studied with Harold instead of Mark. Interesting. Yeah. What was what were what were they both like at that point as as teachers? I learned like the the technique side of things from Mark was incredible. So he had himself like studied with Lee Stevens. Yeah. In fact, I think he was in the first class of students Lee did for like a summer seminar. Mm-hmm. Um, and so learning like marimba technique from him was awesome. That's like, I don't think I would have the grasp on, you know, the mechanics of playing the instrument that I have um, were it not for that time with him. And um, Harold is his teaching style from what I remember, and I'm getting older now, so it's that's a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I remember his teaching being more of um, 
sort of of a journey in that. So lessons with him would not be, okay, do this, do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. It was more of, okay, so here's a way you can do it. Here's a way, here's a way, you know, you are doing this as the artist and you need to pick the way that best suits you. Now there certainly would be something, okay, well, yeah, you're not going to play this excerpt with those mallets or, you know, you know, there was some rules, right. Some boxes that you didn't go outside of. Um, but I, I thought that was very healthy for me of like being given some choice in the matter and being participatory in the way I was going to choose to do things. I'm not sure like to this day, I know I didn't do things all the right way or the best way all the time. Um, but you learn from that, right? You, you pick up things and learn things, how not to do things and you know, make them better the next time. Were you, was, were you marching there? I did for, I did two years. Uh, I think it was two years with, um, with the marching band played in the snare line there. Um, loved it. Thought about auditioning for drum corps, like almost auditioned for drum corps one year. And then something, I don't know, something came up with the first camp weekend. I couldn't go. And then just like the bug kind of fell off after that. So, yeah. How, um, heavy of a schedule was it there? The marching portion? I really don't remember. Um, I can tell you, I don't think it was like it is for my students at USC, for sure. Um, they're, they're five, the percussionists are five days a week with our marching band here. And I want to say it was two or three days a week, you know, plus Saturdays, um, sure. you know, late afternoon rehearsals. And the, the cool thing there is like a practice field at the time. I don't know if it's the same now. It was like directly across the street from the School of Music. Hmm. Um, our students here have a pretty long trek. To, to the marching band facility, but it's incredible. The facility here for the marching band is like one of the best in the country. So those, they're really fortunate for that. It's just, it's a little bit of a distance from the school of music. Sure, yeah. Do you remember some of the lit you were playing back then? Yeah, early on. So I, when I was studying with Harold, we did a lot of um, orchestral excerpts for sure. Like some of the early marimba pieces were some of the same ones that students are you know still doing. Yellow After the Rain and Rain Dance. Um, I remember playing a piece uh, transcribed by Karen Irvin called uh, Variations on a Galliard. And, um, you know, did some other transcriptions. I got kind of into that with uh, some Debussy and some Bach working on those as an undergrad. Um, kept trying my hand at learning Merlin and then stopping and then start again and then quit. And, okay, this is too hard for me. And then try again, you know, coming back to that. Mm-hmm. Um, those are, I still have those same thoughts, even though I've, I played it like 15 years ago. I'm like, I'm still, should I learn this again? I don't know. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is it really worth it? <laughs> right. Is it worth it? <laughs> yeah. And then, um, you know, learning, uh, orchestral rep, you know, on all the instruments, got a lot of good timpani instruction from Harold. Um, that was kind of his thing. He played timpani with the, um, with the Michigan orchestra, and band like when Ravelli was there, um, he was on. If you've ever seen the any of the footage, like from their tour of Russia, he was on that tour. Mm. Um, I think that was in the '60s. Mm. Um, pretty cool, though. You know, he brought back some music. Um, in fact, there's two of the pieces are published by Innovative. There's these two two mallet like Russian sort of like um, folk song things that he transcribed that got published by Innovative. One I played one of those on a on a concert or a recital. Um, yeah, you know, Mexican dances, played some multi-stuff like craft suites. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, some of the same stuff that I still have my students play today. 
because you, you did a lot of orchestral excerpt studying, was that a, a career path you were at all interested in or no? I sort of pondered that for a bit. Um, and it took about a week being at Northwestern to make me realize that there was no way I could be competitive. Um, I mean, one of the first people I met when I walked into the school of music was, um, Angie Zayer Nelson. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Right then and there, it's like, okay, those are the kind of people that need to do that. <laughs> yeah. And, and what's, I mean, incredible that, I mean, like, yeah, orchestral stuff is great. She's just a phenomenal musician all around, like piano skills, play marimba. I mean, it, she can do anything. Um, you know, that was super inspiring to be around, by the way. Do you, you go to Northwestern for master's? Yes, I uh, actually did master's and doctorate there. It was not the intention. And at the time, um, the master's was just one year. Oh, so, wow. Okay. Yeah. And um, both my wife and I were North Carolina teaching fellows. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, right. So we were, um, I wanted to go study with Mike. I wanted to get to Northwestern. And, um, but the plan was to do that and then come back and teach in North Carolina for our four years to pay off the, uh, this, the scholarship. Yeah. But, uh, the bug got bit. And so we ended up having to actually pay those back financially, mm. um, which is a big, big hit to start our lives with 40 grand in debt at 10% interest <laughs> to be paid over seven years. So it was like, it was rough, but it was the right decision. I knew I did not want to teach public school. I, I grappled with this even as an undergraduate because I wanted to change my major to performance because mm-hmm. I knew I was driven to do that, but like I needed the financial help to get me through school. So stuck with through the music ed thing. And I think it was probably the best decision I've ever made because I use a lot of that stuff that I picked up and learned in those classes every day with my students. What I was going to ask you is about the teaching fellows thing is that, or was that something that you were you had the entire time that you were in undergrad or you applied yeah. for it got it and then realized and because the whole idea is that <laughs> like in a in a community that like really needs teachers right and that's right. Yeah. yeah so you apply as a high school senior interview process all of that vetting process yeah and then they select i, I think it's a hundred per year or something like that or it was at the time yeah. um so i happen to be one of those um and so, yeah, it's like you, you have to be an education major. The idea is that you go and teach afterwards. And then there are programs throughout the year geared toward those teaching fellows, um, special speakers, the professional development, some summer activities that we did each year. Um, and that's, I mean, really being a teaching fellow is why I met my wife or how I met my wife, because there's a special dorm at East Carolina that the teaching fellows lived in we probably never would have met otherwise. You finish your undergrad and you decide you're going to go immediately to a master's. Right. Okay. Right. Where normally you would go teach first, right? Yes. Now you didn't have to because the service period was four years, but that had to be completed within seven years of graduation. So, you know, you could teach a couple of years, you could take a year off or you could do something else first and then go teach. Um, but yes, the, the master plan was to go to graduate school, move back to North Carolina, do some teaching and then see what, you know, was going to do after that. I would have been the world's worst middle school or high school band director. So <laughs> fortunate for a whole lot of 
you know, high school and middle school kids that I did not end up doing that. <laughs> do you think that going into college teaching is what you want to do yet? Or is that still uh, coming up? So I mentioned that when um, I was in high school, I went to a camp at East Carolina. Mm-hmm. And I told this to, I don't countless people. I have a, like vivid memory of standing in Mark Ford's office. And we were with all the percussion students. I think it was on the last day. And he was going around asking people, you know, what do you want to do? You know, this person, like some of them music, some of them not. Mm-hmm. And when it got to me, I told him I wanted his job. Every ounce of focus that I had from that point on was to go into college teaching. I don't know why at that point I wanted, other than I had seen him performing, seen him playing, you know, marimba, seen him with the steel band at the at East Carolina um, in so many roles. You know, it just I knew that's what I wanted to do. Gotcha. Now, when by the time that you go to Northwestern, how in what ways are you aware of? that program of the Northwestern program, (laughs) not much because, um, so the year before my senior year, I had, um, gone to the Stevens seminar and that's, I guess I had met Mike Burrett once before then. I think he had come to, to East Carolina when I was younger though. Like I wasn't, I didn't play for him. I was maybe a freshman or sophomore at that point. So I knew of him, but still was, you know, early development stages. But then when he came to the seminar that summer, I was like, okay, I, I, I want to go study with him. And so I started talking to him and he was like, oh, well, I'm not at Kent anymore. I just got the Northwestern job. And I was like, okay. So I go back home and I'm like researching the cost of Northwestern. And going, oh my God, <laughs> what is this going to be like? And my dad's like, oh, son, that's a lot of money. <laughs> um but yeah, I mean, I had applied some other places, um, actually had a full financial offer from another school and ended up choosing to go to Northwestern, um, you know, which was not free and had, you know, took on some debt from doing that. But, you know, aside from having my undergraduate in music ed, that's the second best career decision I've ever made. When you get to Northwestern, aside from uh, seeing Angie Zader Nelson and deciding that maybe this may not be, I may not be good enough really just, just generally. Um, what ways does the, does it feel like a different program or do you feel like you have different responsibilities because you're a a graduate student? Oh my God. So maybe I have an inflated sense of, um, where I was prior to that, Mm -hmm. but I feel as if I probably went from being the top dog to the very bottom of the barrel, like, you know, undergraduates being able to smoke me on auditions. Now that didn't last. (laughs) Um, I mean, that was pretty damn motivating actually. Um, But yeah, I mean, just the, the depth of talent that was there at the time. So in that first year (laughs) you had Angie, uh, Tom Burrett, Fred Silvaggio, the next year, Susan Powell comes, um, you know, uh, Jeremy Fitzsimons is from uh, New Zealand. I was like surrounded immediately by some of the best players anywhere at the time. And yeah, I mean, that was the most motivating thing that could ever have happened. To me. What seems similar, different from Burrett than from 
Harold or Mark? Intensity level, maybe? Yeah. I mean, sure. Yeah, I mean, that's like almost a given with him. <laughs> I don't know how to quantify that, to be honest. There's a, a certain personality there, obviously, that is just like, I mean, people are drawn to Mike, right? I mean, and it's still true. And it'll never stop being true as long as he's doing it. Actually, you know what? I don't think it matters what Mike did. I think he could have been an accountant and, you know, he would have been the best damn accountant anyone could have found. And people would just be like, oh, I've got to go see Mike Burke, you know, do my taxes or whatever it is. <laughs> I don't think it really matters what he did. He would have been great at it. Um, you know, and so it's just like, I don't know, there's something that people are drawn to. It permeates the playing. It permeates the teaching. It permeates the service to PAS. It's, just, it's, it's all encompassing. Yeah. But it, it's interesting because I've talked to a lot of people. I mean, obviously his Mike's web is pretty, pretty yeah. well, well added, certainly at this point. I don't get the sense that that intensity I definitely hear about, but I don't get the sense that it was a negatively d- directed energy, which it certainly could be with someone like. No, uh, no. I, I mean, not in my experience at all. Yeah. Um, I never found it anything but motivating. You know, not everybody succeeded there. Yep, sure. Not everybody got through there. Um, it, yeah, there were certainly people who either it didn't resonate with or they just weren't up to the task. But I found it to be the thing that I needed. Um, and I, I've said this to many of my students and folks in our field before. I mean, I, I learned a tremendous amount from my that being said, I don't think it would have been anywhere near the same experience if it wasn't for the other people there. For yeah. the evenings, sitting in the hallway, talking, you know, with Tom, Susan, these people that I was surrounded with, Angie, you know, listening to them play, having them come listen to me, playing with them, just being like immersed in that basically 24-7 was, it was just life-changing. And we, this is like a sort of a semantics thing that you wouldn't think it matters. But at the time, my wife worked in Lake Forest. So she had to drive, you know, 30 minutes north. We only had one car. I mean, super expensive for, you know, graduate student and a first year teacher. And so, like, I would be dropped off at the School of Music every morning at 7.15. And, like, she would pick me up on the way home from work at, you know, 5.30. So I am constantly surrounded just by nothing but the school of music nine hours a day, 10 hours a day. And so it's like, you can't do anything but absorb it all. When you first get to that area of the country, that is very different from where you were. What is the first indication that you're like, I am not in North Carolina anymore. The people sound a lot different. (laughs) (laughs) Really? And actually I think that they were, um, they were just as taken aback by the way I sounded as the way I was then. Um, yeah. In fact, I mean, like my, my trip to Northwestern to go audition was the first flight I had ever taken. Like I had never been on a plane and dumbass here. Sorry. language. No, no, um, you, you can curse, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> in an effort to try to save costs and streamline, I actually flew up the morning of my audition. Mm. So it was super early. <laughs> Yeah, right. And 
the worst part of it was I woke up at three in the morning to find that my car had been broken into in Greenville, North Carolina. And so like, I'm calling like my now my now wife, who was my girlfriend at the time. I need to borrow your car like right now. You need to drive over here at three in the morning so I can take this to the airport. Yeah. So that was a, <laughs> a long, long day. Um, but yeah, it, it was, it was great. And actually one of the other folks that was a classmate of mine, uh, Marty Scherer. I don't know if you know Marty. You know Marty? I don't know that I do. One of Norton students from Western Kentucky. Um, great. I mean, great player, great guy as well. And, um, you know, but he's got the Kentucky accent. I've got the North Carolina accent. So we were kind of the country boys of, uh, of the Northwestern percussion program. <laughs> yeah. You said, when you when you first stated about going to Northwestern, it was not the intent to necessarily do both degrees there. Right. Not, so, maybe not even to do another degree at all at the time. So what so yeah, take me through that. You've you're either you're finishing your master's and what what's going on? Even as late as say, let's say maybe January of that first year. Mm-hmm. Was still like, okay, what am I going to do? I actually went and took the second part of the praxis because I had not actually been certified yet. Oh, thinking, okay. okay, I'm going to go back to North Carolina and teach. Um, and then started, started talking with Mike. He was like, well, you know, we're going to have an assistantship open next year. Tom is leaving the drumline assistantship. He was like, I understand you've got a lot of experience doing that. I had done a, a fair amount of teaching and writing. Um, he was like, you know, I could probably get you that assistantship if you want to stick around. I was like, okay, I'm not going to do this. And, you know, re-auditioned, applied for that, interviewed for that position. And I think it was basically me getting that TA that was like, okay, this sealed the fate. I'm not going anywhere. But that was still just to finish out the master's, right? No, no, no. That was because the master's was one year. Oh, right, right. I'm sorry, sorry. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So I would have been done after the first year and gone back to North Carolina and taught. Um, I would have been miserable. I would have not been good at it. And uh, this just it just worked out for I mean so much better. I was really super driven by the the marching band TA because at the time Steve Peterson was the marching band director. He's since left, and he actually left after that year. So I thought I was going to be working with Steve Peterson. Um, and it's just as well because Rodney Dorsey ended up being the one of, um, he was ended up doing a doctorate, but was on the, on the faculty as well and taught the marching band. And so I got to work with Rodney Dorsey for two years teaching the drumline. And at that time it was just a two year residency for the doctorate. So I literally did two years of the coursework was done, departed Wow. That's, yeah. it's, it's interesting to think that it's, it seems kind of, kind of bizarre just to think that you did, you were only there for three years. Yep. Like that's for two degrees. That's, that seems nuts. <laughs> like, it took a little while on the other end of me leaving. To I'm sure it did. <laughs> because I walked into this job in Emporio and, you know, I was teaching music appreciation. I was teaching marching band techniques. I had never taken a marching band techniques course. I was teaching a course like a portfolio development for music ed students, along with doing the drum line, teaching percussion, doing the percussion ensemble. So uh, I got nothing done the entire three years I was there. Nothing. I made no progress on my degree. Oh. Um, and in fact, it, like my hiring here at USC was contingent upon me finishing the degree 
after one calendar year, which I did not do, they gave me an extension. And so it took me until August of that next year to get it done. Wow. Yeah. Okay. All right. So the, you, you threw a lot at me. So let me, let's, let's, sorry, I'm sorry. Let's, I'm no, so no. rambly too that like, yeah, I know. No, no, it's great. It's great. No, let's unpack a little bit of it though. So um, after the second year of your doctorate, were you just trying out, you were like, I'll apply for some stuff. I mean, is that, and, and, and you end up getting a job. Applying for anything I could find actually. Yeah. Um, and I ended up getting this job in Kansas. Um, there had been someone there for a while and Tom Hassenflug was an interim there for one year. Yeah. Okay. And so I ended up with the job and I mean, I couldn't believe it. I, re- I remember the day that I got the job offer. Jim Ross was teaching um, that week for Mike. He was in Mike's office teaching. I was like, oh, you know, I got a job. I got a job. <laughs> Can you believe this? Um, and so it was, it was just fantastic that it worked out, you know, no experience and just happened to be the one they went with. Well, how much is still left though? Where, did you still have recitals left? Did you still have a dot? Like what, what kind of things were, were not completed when you leave? Um, like all of it. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, what was completed? <laughs> well, I had done the recitals. Um, uh-huh. Two of them. Yeah. <laughs> two of the three. Yeah. And that, that was it. So I had, that didn't even have a topic yet. Um, I didn't have the language proficiency completed. Didn't have the comps done. I didn't have anything to do that. I was nothing. All had to be done. Yep. And, and for three years, you can't, you, there's just no time for you to, like, were there not even like, were you trying to take like stuff in the summer or that even that was just not even the thing? So, well, I mean, a lot of my summer ended up being taken up with trying to get stuff ready for the next year, marching band, that kind sure. of stuff. Um, practicing that I didn't really get to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, we start like, you know, working with Susan and Joe, we were starting this kind of thing. So, you know, maybe working on some of that music as well. My, the summer after trying to think, I guess it was the summer after my second year at Emporia, I played in the Belgian rumba competition. So mm-hmm. I had to, I prepared that. There was a pretty big program to get ready. Um, so that took the whole summer there. I didn't get, you know, any time to do anything else. Wow. And I mean, I, listen, I'm sure I probably could have done some of it. I, oh. you know, I shouldn't say that every minute was, also spoken for, but yeah, we, again, like, you know, living in Kansas and home being in North Carolina, there's some travel, you know, you know, trying to visit family when we can over summer. And, you know, yeah, I just, I maybe didn't make the most use of time, but also during the year, they just, I, I couldn't do it. Yeah. Well, of course. Were, was your wife with you in Kansas? Yeah. 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 She taught there again, you know, we're in a situation where we've got like one car because I mean, Emporia is pretty damn small. Mm-hmm. Uh, not a, not a big place. Um, so yeah, she was there, you know, we were both getting our, you know, feet wet. She'd been teaching for three years outside of Chicago, but, um, yeah, this was our first, like both being employed. Yeah. While you're in Emporia, you have a job, you don't have your, your doctor set done, but you have a job. Mm-hmm. Are you thinking like, I can't be like, I mean, the way you're explaining it, you're, it sounds like, were you thinking I can't be on this pace 
much longer. Like, I, I don't know how much of this I could really take. I was thinking <laughs> I can't live in Kansas for much longer. <laughs> okay. I, and I've already said like the, the people, the people there are fantastic. I don't mean just the people I work with. It, it's, it's a wonderful place to live in that respect. Yeah. Um, the, the people I worked with were equally awesome, mm-hmm. um, and got so, I mean, like so many opportunities to play and perform, um, do things that, you know, I'm, I wouldn't have gotten to do at a larger school, but there's just nothing there. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, you know, when you come from living in Chicago <laughs> to go to that, it's like, I mean, I think that shock was way worse from than moving from North Carolina to Chicago, but to get out of that. And I was like, okay, I, I, when you will get in the car on a Tuesday night and drive an hour and 15 minutes to Topeka to go have dinner Uh because the people at Applebee's in Emporia are asking you if you're going to have the usual. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. Yeah, you get it, right? (laughs) Yeah. We see, this is what's the the reason I've laughed so hard is because like, this was exactly, I taught at, at Concord university in Virginia, where uh, this was in the the mid two thousands, and Applebee's was the one place that was open late, and so we like we knew the whole menu, as yep. you probably knew the whole menu yeah. at the Emporia Applebee's, and so yeah, we would go to like uh, Roanoke or Christiansburg, Blacksburg <laughs> to get like something other than an Applebee's. Yeah. Right, that's what was there. Yeah, I, so that's I get it, like. <laughs> Burned up the like the Kansas Turnpike, you know, <laughs> and I mean, you would, like that is the most boring drive. I mean, aside from like driving like in West Texas or Eastern like Colorado, there's nothing there. There's 30 miles between exits. <laughs> like if you don't get gas, you know, you're, you're you don't want to get off. Like nothing there. So yeah, to like endure that just to go somewhere other than Applebee's on a Tuesday night. It's, like, yeah, <laughs> it's maybe time, you know, I, mean, I have, like, look, I have great friends that still live sure. there. Um, very close with the director of bands there and his wife. Um, awesome people. I could yeah. not have asked for better people to work with, but yeah, just that environment after a while. I was like, I, yeah. And it's probably good that I left because um, they're, they're in a situation at a school that size where they can, they pay really well. And it's very possible I could have very quickly gotten priced out of being able to move. Mm. Yeah. Uh, f- five years there. If I'd have stayed there three to five more years, I, I don't think I could have afforded to be hired at another school. Like where I, you know, in, even in Columbia, like, you know, they offered me the, basically the same starting salary I was making in Emporia. So yeah. Yeah. I would have ended up taking a pay cut to go somewhere. Well, but that's that's not a, that's not a an unusual situation, particularly if you're thinking long term and you're like, yes, I might have to make this reduction now, but I know absolutely, absolutely. Right. So when you get to so you 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 mentioned that they gave like part of a stipulation was we need you to be done right. uh, now on. Um, on Northwestern's end, was there a did, was there a limit from them? Like you, because there is sometimes with these degrees that you you have to finish within a certain amount of time. There probably is, but you didn't reach uh, it. I didn't reach it because they have they have a better incentive 
you have to register for continuance, I think is what it's called. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the first year it's like 300 bucks. Yeah. The second year it's 600, 1500, three grand. Like it, yeah, you've got a really good incentive to actually get done. You know, the first year you're like, oh, you know, three, 400 bucks, it's not a big deal. But then, you know, as it got to the third and fourth year, I was like, uh, okay, I really, you know, not only for here do I have to get this done, but yeah, it was time. Yeah. So how much when, when you're, does those early, those first, what you said it took a year, year and a half or two years to, to finish? So let's say I arrived here in, I think it took, it took two full years. Okay. Um, and, and I think what it, it was, they gave me 18 months. That's what they, they gave me until December of my second year. Mm-hmm. And it took me until August of, of my, after my second year of teaching. It was, it was, I mean, it was a lot, you know, to get paper done, do the exams, um, foreign language thing. I mean, do, and doing all this from a distance was a challenge. Yeah. Well, and trying to get your, get settled yeah. in that program. I, that's, it's, it's a lot, like it's, it's a, a lot. lot. <laughs> it's a lot. But as you mentioned, it's, it's motivating when you're, when, when it's like, you know, that financially on that end, it's going to be a real pain. <laughs> I actually, the last year I took a loan to, because it was so much. I think it was, it was over $3,000. Yeah. And um, when I, I did the financial aid paperwork, I was like allowed enough that I took it all and bought my first member that way. So I bought my first member with a student loan because I was like, I could never like have interest rate this low on a personal loan, you know, like two and a half, three percent. Yeah. I'm going to roll this in and buy a Brenda. So it worked out. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. that's great. Were, was it like a was it a relief when you get to you uh, to USC that you don't have these other that you can actually focus on percussion? I bet. I mean, that was really the motivation for wanting to get out. I mean, you know, I want to go and do solely what I was trained to do. Um, I was ready to be done with marching band stuff, um, you know, as much as I I could. Um, yeah, and wanted to, you know hopefully have a little bit step up in the level of playing and students that I was teaching, you know. Yeah. And be, have more options than Applebee's too. More options than Applebee's, but yes, very liberating not to have to do the other coursework, those kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. I bet. All right. Well, let's, let's jump to the final segment, random ask questions. Uh Oh, so it's good. It's a good start. Um, uh, Scott, what's an issue in percussion education or percussion performance or something related that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts? People trying to play stuff that's too hard for them. That's mm-hmm. my sort of my soapbox. In fact, got kind of on a mission and even get pushback from students sometimes um, because they, they want to, you know, make it through a little faster. And um, I think we're, I don't know. I mean, I'm probably even guilty of doing it myself sometimes with students, but you know, the YouTube thing is probably created a lot of this. Yeah. And so, you know, you go and watch Pius or Jihei play something. It's like, Oh, that, you know, I can do that. <laughs> and it's just like we're seeing the final three, five minutes of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of hours of work, plus all the work prior to that. 
And that's, I think that's sometimes something that younger students don't get. Um, you know, I, I don't know why there's this need for us to have like an undergraduate play the most difficult things in our repertoire when they're a senior. I mean, I just don't think it's necessary. Um, and, and I've said it a hundred times, you know, there's pianists that won't tackle some list pieces and play publicly. It's just, it's just not, I don't know why we think we have to do that sometimes. So, yeah, I may be too, I may be guilty of going too far the other way. And I, but I'm also, I'm a modernist to know and a realist enough to know that, you know, the bar is raising for sure. So, sure. you know, um, I mean, you know, my son can play things that I played as a college sophomore and junior and senior at times. So he, he's capable of that. Um, and I see that from a, a lot of students coming in, but a lot of times they're not great instruction or technique is really not working. And, you know, when you see that, you know, they're going to hit a wall at some point. And that's my goal is to give them, you know, the skills to be able to like have this constant trajectory and not plateau where they can't progress because they don't have the input from the background that they need. I was like, I watch Jihei videos and I'm like, I, I play these pieces and I can't play them like this. Like, I, yeah. <laughs> well, don't we all? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I was like, there's Jihei's performance, which is its own level. And then there's everybody else trying that's to do right. it. Like, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> well this is it's interesting um i just i recently talked to and you you're another person who i want to get feedback on this with um because i i just let yesterday i released a video uh, episode with andy harnsberger who i talked to about a month ago oh, okay. and andy because andy's been playing you know marimba concerts forever like you have when you do uh master classes and you you and you see a lot of the students as you do um are there pieces that you we used to hear that you just never hear anymore or almost oh. never hear, or you, when they play it, you're like, Oh, it's been a while. Yes. In fact, I mean, I have a marimba clinic that I do that is, it's basically this very topic we're talking about. Yeah. Um, and I, I use a lot of these pieces to demonstrate like why you should not be playing this piece, like something like frogs, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of students that that'll be the first thing they play, like the first marimba piece they learn. That's a hard opener. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. uh, independent roles in the upper register. Yeah. You, you know, I mean, you know, it's not the like the most important thing in the piece, right? But you get to this little charming section, and it gets ruined because the students can't play an independent role. Right. Um, like a tune from area, right? The middle section has the like bubbly triplets. In the right hand. Well, I mean, that's an acquired skill to learn, right? I mean, it's, I had, I literally had a student come to me at an audition and say that was his first piece he ever played. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Are you kidding me? You have skipped some steps here, mm -hmm. Jedi. And so, yeah, it's like, what is going on? Um, you know, and that's actually a big thrust of this Marimba clinic I do. A, a large portion of it is spent talking about, you know, you don't have to get through every piece or up to the, the most difficult things in our repertoire right away. You know, it's okay to make a slower progression, but you know, the, we do live in a days of some instant gratification and, you know, seeing all of that stuff out there that, that's existing is it's tough. Yeah. Well, and do you have the kind of the follow-up conversations in those manners where you're like, uh, well, how long have you been playing this? And then it's an extremely long time. And you're like, okay, well, there's one. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Exactly. And I mean, part of my 
um, I didn't get to all of this. And I was saying this earlier, but so like instead of a student spending an entire semester learning a piece that they can barely wrap their musical intuition, their technique around, I'd rather them get through four less difficult pieces that give them all kinds of, you know, varied skills that they might not have acquired from just playing that one piece. I mean, at the end of the day, if you just look at the math, I mean, over the course of four semesters, you know, 20 pieces versus six, right. You know, what's more valuable. Right. 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 I mean, and as you're saying, like, I can actually get you the skill set so that you, this'll be not a big deal. <laughs> like in, in a year and a half when you're actually ready for it. And I sort of take the approach and I'm not, I don't always, I don't always succeed with this with students. I think some of my students would tell you this, that's truth. Um, but like I try to make sure that they own the skills for whatever piece I want them to play next already. Or like maybe there's one, like one specific skill that they're lacking. But if you are learning all the techniques, all the music, like all the notes, all the musicality, the phrasing, dynamic, I mean, all of that, it, it's, it's, it's just overwhelming. Is that when sometimes when those conversations happen with students who are doing that, you get, do you get pushback? Like, no, it's, I'm good. Or of course. Yeah. Oh, or, you know, and they, or they come to me with a piece, like, I want to play this. I'm like, um, okay, can we like maybe wait a semester or, you know, and then sometimes, sometimes I will give in, you know, and normally I'm proven right Mm -hmm. (laughs) because at the end of the semester, we're still dealing with some of the same things that we were at the beginning because it's just like the ownership of the techniques are not there or whatnot. And um, I, I sort of tend to make this about Marimba, but it's not. Just right. about Marimba, you know. I don't usually have my first semester students playing Dale for six weeks. I just they they just don't do that. Um, can they? Probably, but there's stuff they need to learn before that they can apply to that. Because the other the other side of this sometimes is it's just the level of lit that's being written right now. Um, not and again, not just Marimba. I'm, I'm thinking like chamber stuff, multi percussion stuff is just frequently way higher. Then, then certainly the stuff you and I came, understood when we were their age. Of course, of course. Yep. Yeah. Gotcha. All right. Some other questions. Uh, has and not these are not percussion related, but has anyone nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it? You know, I'm, I'm sure they must have, but I don't know who. I've not seen it, so maybe this will prompt. Oh, good. Someone there was, although now I'm going to take that back. Okay. Yeah. So one of my colleagues here um, is Greg Stewart. He was a percussion student at Northwestern as well. And he now um, does more in like contemporary music and teaches some musicology classes. Um, Yeah. He actually from the Northwestern days was able to do a little bit. Yeah, I remember now <laughs> thinking back to that. <laughs> yep. Yeah, like to you, like to your face kind of thing. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he would like, you know, repeat things that I had said about, you know, the, this moving stuff and yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> was he adding like an extra twang just to just to get on your skin kind of thing? Probably. <laughs> Probably so. And I'm sure it was deserved. Absolutely. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. All right. What is a uh, the most impractical item of clothing you own? I'm sorry. I don't know that I own any impractical clothing. Okay. I'm trying to think. Everything in your closet is very sensibly there, and you wear it and all that stuff. I mean, these days I'd say the tux. No, <laughs> right. <laughs> I, never, I never have to wear it anymore. Um, I spe- I actually, you know what? The tails. Oh. The tails. The tails that I bought to play with the orchestra that doesn't wear tuxes at all. Not only do they not wear tails, they don't even wear tuxes. It's all black now. Mm. So, yeah, that's pretty impractical. That's good. Although, you know, most people would say that my cycling outfit and gear is probably impractical. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Rough. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's practical for cycling, but that's the only thing it's good for. But once you get off the cycle, it's like, what are you doing, man? You you hope that you don't have to run into Walmart for something. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, that's good. All right. Scott, what is a great movie and what is a terrible movie? Uh, I, I'm a huge like Star Wars fan, so mm. the whole the whole series, I love those. Terrible movie. Hmm. I don't even know where to start. <laughs> uh, I can tell you the worst movie I ever saw. Oh, nice. Was Ishtar. <laughs> Yeah, and I remember taking a girlfriend on a second date to go see that. Worst movie I've ever seen. <laughs> Worst movie, absolutely. Was, uh, let me guess, no third date on that one? No, there were third dates. Okay. Yeah. All right. Actually, we were we were an item for a long time. That was the uh, flute player and uh, I dated as a high school student. Oh. For like three years, yeah. So oh, wow. she made it through that one, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, do you have a, uh, within Star Wars, is there, um, is there a particular movie that you think is like this? Do do you have like a position on one of these is actually the best and we need to stop having a conversation about this? I don't know if I'm influenced by my wife. Okay. But I, I think I have to agree that Rogue One is probably my favorite. Yeah. I, I think I'm, I might be up there with that. Mm -hmm. That's a, that was a really, really good one. It was. And I know, like, I, I certainly don't put this high, super high on the list. I know a lot of people did not like Solo at all, but I really didn't mind Solo. Um, you know, again, it wouldn't be in my all-time favorites of Star Wars or anything else, to be honest. But, you know, it wasn't like, I don't know. At the end of the day, I'm like, we're still watching Star Wars. You know, it's just like, you know, not that bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Um, are you on the – where are you on the original – the first three that came out, not the, not the prequels, the original three. What's, what's your order there? Empire, New Hope, Jedi. Gotcha. Yeah. That's you. I think that's usually where, where people land on that. Most people kind of land there. Yeah. yeah. But again, I mean, you know, I remember going to see them in the theater and yeah, it's like, wow, yeah. <laughs> this is incredible. Are your and, kids in it as well? Yeah. Uh, yeah. In fact, one of the stories we like to tell most about my son Mm-hmm. is that um, 
when he was about three, we had gotten completely fed up with Thomas the Tank Engine. (laughs) Got to find something. I remember we were on a trip going to Disney and we were like, oh, let's try Star Wars in the car. You know, so put the DVD in. And he was like, (laughs) mesmerized. And I mean, this is probably terrible parenting, but you know, it was like Star Wars constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, like, you know, he was too young to know the movie names. And so um, let's see, Empire Strikes Back was uh, Snow and Ice. That was the, what do you call that movie? Mm-hmm. And, uh, That's right. It's accurate. Yeah. Return of the Jedi was uh, Mad Men in the Chair. That was the name <laughs> we had for that. <laughs> And Star Wars was just just the first one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) Well, as as long as when he's that age, he's not just rewinding the Jabba the Hut scene all the time. Like then you're that's a different that's a different problem. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Princess Leia the Golden King. Right. Right. (laughs) One episode. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. (laughs) That's awesome. All right. Do you have a favorite book? It's it's one of the the Malcolm Gladwell books. Um, Oh, okay. Uh, outliers. Um, outliers. Yep. Love his work. Love his podcast. Yeah. Uh, what what book of his did, was your kind of entrance in? Mm. Um, I'm thinking that Outliers might have been the first one, and okay. then I read was that what the dog saw is that mm-hmm. the that's gone? the that's the the short stories. Club. Right, 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 right. And then, and actually, I, I love that one too. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I've read another one, but I can't remember. Blink? Blink, yes, Blink. In fact, I think those are the only three that I know. And he probably, has, I'm sure he has more, but those are the it's, three. I, I think the three. first one was The Tipping Point. <clears throat> tipping, you know what? I've read Tipping Point too, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. but I tend, to, I tend to gravitate toward outliers a lot. And I, I talk about that a lot, actually, with, with students and, you know, some of the concepts behind that and, like, you know, a lot of the success being circumstantial and, you know, how the cards fall for you. It's a lot of things out of your control. <clears throat> right. Or it's the, the time you grew up in or something like that. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 Exactly. You know, the whole being born in whatever month to be a hockey player and can't, you right. know, like, that, that kind of thing, which is completely out of control, but yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> well, that's what's kind of, it's interesting. Cause there's like the, the, one of the kind of like the, the hours, the 10,000 hours stuff that that's, you know, baked into that, it always comes up with like the Beatles uh, because they went to, because they, they played these concerts in Hamburg that they were put for like a year when they played basically overnight for like eight hours a night. And like, that was their reps to basically learn every single type of, of pop music that was available at the time. And so when they finally started songwriting, they had everything. It was there. It was all there. Yeah. That's right. I do. I, I do remember this discussion. Yep. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's pretty, pretty fascinating stuff. Cool. Um, what's something that's more of a we've, we've gone into Star Wars, which is obviously pretty well, like, you know, full. But what's something on a more obscure level? And it could be pop. Uh, it could be like pop culture related or something like that. But something on a more obscure level. If you meet someone and they're like, oh, I like blank, whatever that is. And you go, we're good. What would that be for you? I, think of a few, I mean, a lot of it is like relates to my hobbies. Um, mm-hmm. So not super obscure, you know, um, playing golf. Obviously, that's something I do a lot of. Very, 
passionate about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the cycling has become something. Uh, bourbon <laughs> is another one. Ooh, yeah. yeah. And craft beer. So, yeah, any of those things, I, I usually have something to talk about. <laughs> mm-hmm. They walk up to you and they're like, I just got a new sand wedge. And you're like. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, I've had some like, you know, some special golf things. I've been to the Masters several times. Um, nice. I got play at St. Andrews. Oh, wow. Um, the Players Championship several times. So, yeah, some, some cool, some cool golf stuff. Gotcha. Um, do you, what's your, what's your handicap? I mean, I, I, I just would be guessing probably 10, 11. That's really good. <laughs> well, I mean, I've been down to a five or four. Like, wow. Yeah. When I went to Scotland, um, it, it, I was told that you have to have a registered USGA handicap in order to get on the old course. And so the club I was playing with, I went through the process, set it up and made sure I could play enough rounds. And I, I think when I went, it was like a five or a six. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, you know, I can still hit the ball pretty well. I just don't get to play as often. Um, it, one of the things like in the summers and when I was in Kansas, after the day was over, I would go and play golf with this retired highway patrolman at two in the afternoon every day. Um, and we played every day, like every day in the afternoon. And so I was able to learn to really play, you know, that kind of level. That's great. That was, you know, pre kids, sure. free, super high profile job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I got you. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's great. Um, what is your biggest kitchen mess up? Uh, can it be out of the kitchen, but still cooking related? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Trying to improvise and use a Pyrex dish as the water reservoir for a smoker. Did it blow up? Extinguished all the coals. <laughs> oh glass everywhere. All the soot from the coals is all over the Boston butt and meat. Mm. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. My current smoker doesn't have one. I was like, you know, I really want to make this more indirect. And I was like, and I mean, I had not even closed the door to the smoker. And it was like, <laughs> so loud. Scared the shit out of me. Didn't know what had happened. Yeah. Down. <laughs> did you need a new smoker or was it, did it, was that? No, something? no, it was just a simple box smoker. But I mean, yeah, like I needed a new dish. <laughs> <laughs> and actually though, actually once cleaning everything off, getting the fire restarted, it ended up being fine. Yeah. But that was the most bonehead thing I've done as a chef. <laughs> oh, that's, that's good. All right. Where is somewhere that you have not traveled to that you still want to get to? Egypt. Why Egypt? I want to see the pyramids and some of that ancient culture. Um, and I'm, I'm fully aware of how like commercialized it can be, but that's just something that since I was a kid, I've always wanted to go see. Um, and I, yeah, to this day, there are other places on the list to really would like, to, I want to go to Greece, not even to Greece. Um, love to get to Ireland. New Zealand as well. Um, but yeah, those are Egypt would be like place. And I've gotten, you know, I've gotten to do a fair amount of traveling. So I feel pretty fortunate. Um, but yeah, a couple of places I'd love to, to make it to. Gotcha. What is the your um heritage origin wise? 
you know, um, I've never really looked into it. My one of my cousins started on some ancestry stuff. Father's side, we believe, is English. Okay. Although, really funny, um, maybe 10, 11 years ago, when I was in France, we visited a winery that was Domain Heron, but it only had one R. Mm. And so I joked with them that, you know, this is like uh, part of my, you know, inheritance, right? Like, y'all give up this winery. This is going to be beautiful. Like, so, so beautiful. It's outside of Strasbourg. Just gorgeous, gorgeous. Gotcha. Well, I, I, cause it, like I was, I kept looking at it on the screen and just thinking. Yeah. And I don't know, you know, that probably later in life than I will want it to have happened. That would be something I'd love to kind of dig into and, and find out. Sure. Mm-hmm. Strangest, funniest, or most bizarre performance moment that involves you. Senior recital. Mm-hmm. Undergraduate. Playing the Carter March. Mm-hmm. One of the stick flips. Yep. I didn't catch and <clears throat> caught it on the drum. Like oh. literally trapped it <laughs> in my hand and the drum. Otherwise, it was going to be in the audience. Still to this day, don't know how it didn't go out. <laughs> yep, that was uh that was a, a tough one. <laughs> <laughs> First major performance as a soloist, you know. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Did your right hand still just perf- was fine? Yeah. And then the left hand yeah. had to yeah. retreat? Yeah. I mean, actually, I didn't lose much in, in the performance of that. but And I'm sure I ended up with the wrong end of the mallet for at least part of the time. But sure. yeah, that was, a, that was an interesting one. <laughs> you probably, it, it's seared in your brain. Oh, like yeah. A, a, yeah. A, <laughs> <laughs> a trap hit that does not exist in the in the original. The worst performance <laughs> I can tell you about that. Sure, was playing um, Christopher Dean's piece Three Shells. Oh, and this was at a an event at Northwestern, and it was like a Zildjian day, basically. Um, and so I was playing it in a master class for Lee Stevens and for the entire basically attendance of this. And I don't know if you know the piece well, but it, there's the some of the same thematic material keeps coming back and things get juxtaposed among one another. And I got into this loop that I could not, I had just a memory slip and kept getting back to the same point. And, you know, leaves in the audience watching the music go by. Like, nobody else knows this piece. Right, except yeah. for some of my colleagues. And I finally, I just stopped. And then I restarted and finished out the piece and it was fine. And Lee was like very gracious about this. He could have totally like taken me to, you know, task on this, but did not. And afterwards, a colleague in the percussion area comes to me and says, that was really awesome. I've never heard you take that much time between the two movements. This person had heard this piece, I don't know, probably half a dozen times, and I fooled them for me. And actually, that wasn't until a day or two later. Uh-huh. Um, I remember walking out to my car after that. I was like, this is the end of my career. I'm done with this. I, I mean, literally, I was like, I, I, I'm never going to be able to stand up on stage and play again. Like, 
I thought I was done. <laughs> yep. Technically, your friend was not wrong. I mean, it was a longer pause than you would normally take. It had been a longer pause, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. So, not lying. I, I'm just saying. No, you know. no, not lying. Not lying. And I was happy to know that at least one person there had been fooled. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right, last question, Scott. One, yeah. one piece of art could be books, theater, music. Poetry, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual arts, anything has impacted you the most recently. This is going to sound totally self-serving. It's not meant to be that. Okay. The performance my students gave at PASIC this year was one of the most inspiring things I've ever seen. And that may have only been to me. But yeah, the passion they played with, the energy they had. Did, was it like beyond what you thought that was going to be? Is that what part of the reason Did it, it like they yeah. actually hit a level that you were. Yep. Yep. It, there was, it was a, like our preview performance here was good. And I mean, by it, like, you know, we all obviously always try to play well, but yeah. you know, when you're got that, that performance is coming up, you're trying to take this to another level. And so even the performance here by most standards would have been, you know, even a notch above what we would normally get, you know, and then their performances along the way got better and better and better. And yeah. And I, and, you know, after not having seen them for several days yeah. and being so just being so like crazy stressed about it, you know, probably colored my impression of it. But when I go back and watch it now, like, it's just like, wow. Yeah. I'm so inspired by what they did. That's great. Yeah. All right, Scott, we are done. Thank you so much. You are incredibly good at this. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, like, first of all, I can't imagine anybody wants to hear half of the shit that I talked about <laughs> at all. But Yeah. But even, so, yeah, you're just so engaging and good at this, this interview. It's, it's incredible. Oh, I very much appreciate that, Scott. Thank yeah. you so much. What a pleasure getting to chat with Scott for this interview. I look forward to catching up with him and his various groups as we move forward. This was just a lot of fun. And the compliment that came at the end came out of nowhere and was incredibly appreciated. Thank you, Scott. This week's rave is the current documentary feature film, Hallelujah. Leonard Cohen, A Journey, A Song. Directed by Daniel Geller and Dana Goldfein and now in theaters. The basis for Hallelujah comes partially from a book about the song Hallelujah entitled The Holy or the Broken, written by Alan Light. The film, Hallelujah, is an intriguing look at the various challenges that were part of Leonard Cohen's journey from writer and poet to performer and musician, while also telling the story of a song that's become a cover song favorite for many artists in many genres, particularly over the last 30 years. I'll get this part out of the way first. 
My one complaint about this movie is that it's too long. Generally speaking, the sweet spot for most music documentaries has been in the 90 to 105 minute length. And this one clocked in at just under two hours. Personally, while they were building up the journey of Leonard Cohen, they took a little too long in that particular portion and too long to get to the song specifics. But once they were there, the story of Leonard alongside the story of him with the song became really, really good. Leonard Cohen, it's safe to say, is an acquired taste. He's best known for his lyrics and songwriting, as well as having possibly the deepest bass baritone pop voice this side of Barry White. Because his music is so lyric central, the instrumental side of his recordings and performances veers into the sparse and the slow, which allows you to focus on the lyrics, but it's not as interesting to listen to the overall product. I was most formally introduced to his music through a great documentary from a tribute concert while he was still alive, 2005's Leonard Cohen, I'm Your Man. If Leonard Cohen singing his own works doesn't do it for you, a concert filled mainly with folk and independent artists singing his works may be better. And from that concert, there are a bunch of tremendous covers. Shockingly enough, on the studio album, there is not the cover of Hallelujah that's done by Rufus Rainwright, even though it appears in the film. In any case, the documentary does focus on the journey of the song Hallelujah to its first recordings, to the fact that Leonard Cohen wrote well over 100 verses for the song over the years, to the song being buried on an album that was never released in the United States, to the first cover version done by John Cale, to the version for guitar and voice by Jeff Buckley, which for myself and many other folks was their first introduction to the song, and many consider it the gold standard, to when Kale's version of Hallelujah appeared in the first Shrek movie, which is where many young folks, including the students I played this clip for in my oral skills class, had heard the song. In any case, It's well worth your time, and during the viewing of the film, I was made to remember that Leonard Cohen has two of my favorite lyrics of all time. From the 1992 song, Anthem, there is a crack, a crack in everything, that's how the light gets in. And I heard it amended in the 2005 cover version from the Leonard Cohen I'm Your Man concert by Perla Batala and Julie Christensen, That included the line, that's how the night gets in. I love the interchange of those words. And from 1984's Hallelujah, and this is the verse that most connects me with this song. It's not a cry that you hear at night. It's not somebody who's seen the light. It's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah. Check out the documentary film, Hallelujah, now in theaters. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, 
like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete's at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time. Until then. <laughs>